This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to Primal Screen, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and it's Groundhog Day again. Yes, somehow we're back in lockdown here in Melbourne, which means we're in the virtual studio once again, but we've got a little bit of a different look. Joining us is uh, Flick Ford. Hello, Paul. Hello. And making his Primal Screen debut is film critic, academic, and dare I say nerd, Jamie Tram. Hey, hey. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here as a fellow nerd. (laughs) (laughs) I like that you just singled out Jamie as a nerd. I feel like... uh, Well, the rest of us are nerds. Yeah, Yeah, I know. know, It's it's like the Wonderland, you know, we're all mad here. here. I see the Hellboy poster in my room, so I can't deny it. Yeah, there's a a Hellboy (laughs) and a Pikachu, so, you know, we're... (laughs) Um, you're very much self-identifying. Um, so now we're recording this episode under the proviso that this snap lockdown is lifted right on schedule this Thursday. First, we will follow Stephen Yoon and his young Korean family to start an Arkansas farm in director Lee Isaac Chung's Minari. Then we'll have a few drinks with Mads Mikkelsen in director Thomas Vinterberg's Another Round. Then we'll highlight the newly reopened Australian Centre for the Moving Images Wong Kar Wai season by exchanging longing glances with Maggie Chung and Tony Leung in the director's 2000 masterpiece, In the Mood for Love. But first, it's time for the Primal Screen News Bulletin for the week. So, as I briefly mentioned uh, just then, uh, last Thursday on the 11th of Feb, the Melbourne institution we know and love as ACME, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, reopened last week with a brand spanking new makeover and a completely revamped permanent exhibition called The Story of the Moving Image, which is spectacular and beautifully set out. Um, Now a world-class museum of the history of film, television, video games, news reportage, and the moving image in all its forms. It'll make you forget all about grubby old screen worlds, may it rest in peace, with lots of vintage moving image instruments, such as magic lanterns, zoetropes, kinetoscopes, and vintage cameras, as well as costumes, video games, archives, interviews, even a try-it-yourself folly booth to record sound effects, as well as theaterettes, nooks, and crannies to lose yourself in. And they have also relaunched their cinema program with Love and Neon, the cinema of Wong Kar Wai, screening every film directed by Hong Kong's master of cinematic sensuality. And we'll be spotlighting one of those films later on in tonight's show. Once the lockdown is over, Acme can be found in its usual home in Federation Square in the heart of the Melbourne CBD. Did either of you, have either of you had the chance to visit Acme yet since it reopened? 
Not yet. I saw your post and it made me want to go back there and then lockdown happened. <laughs> As it does. Yes. Jamie? I was waiting for a train at Flinders, so I had a quick look. Not Didn't go inside an exhibition, but um, I bugged one of my friends who was working there. Excellent. I checked out the gift shop. It's a great gift shop, actually. Um, they, start, they have um, Girls on Tops tees for those who like those I shows. noticed that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they got I the mean, Sandy Powell one because there's a whole bunch of Sandy Powell costumes in the exhibition. Yeah. For, oh, that's why. I was wondering why because it seemed like an odd name to feature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't worry about directors or, you know, actors, you know, Greta Gerwig or Lynn Ramsey. Just go straight for Sandy Powell. Go straight for costume designers. No, that's the method in their madness. But, yeah, I love the way it's all set out now. Like you walk in from the Flinders Street entrance, the shop's right there. Uh, the you know the the exhibitions on the other side. You've got this big kind of staircase leading up, and in particular on the Fed Square level, there's a lounge sort of area which is all decked out like a retro lounge room, which is kind of incredible. Uh, it's gorgeous, but yeah, but the exhibition's hugely recommended. If you think it's like yeah, like I said, grubby old screen walls, it's not that at all. It feels it reminded me of the uh, French the Cinémathèque Française in a lot of the best ways. So in other news, Australia's premier screen industry conference, Screen Forever, launches tomorrow in its 35th edition. Usually held in Queensland, this year will be held entirely online. Organised by Screen Producers Australia, this year Screen Forever highlights the latest trends and newest technologies in an immersive social and multi-platform environment, showcasing the hottest global companies and most innovative storytellers with over 20 keynote addresses, panels, workshops, roundtables, pitching opportunities and networking events. Uh, providing the opportunity to do business with over 800 attendees from diverse industry backgrounds, including producers, writers, directors, distributors, exhibitors, broadcasters, agents, entertainment lawyers, etc., etc., be inspired by the most outstanding creative visionaries from all across all genres and platforms, from feature film to short film, drama to documentary, light entertainment to immersive media, and back. Network with leaning luminaries at the much-anticipated opening night drinks online, of course. Uh, and leave inspired to tell authentic and, con- and compelling stories on screen. Screen Forever runs from Feb 16th to 18th, and you can find out more at screenforever.org.au. Okay, now it's time to jump in to our first film. I don't like Grandma. Grandma smells like Korea. Yeah. What Grandma smell? Minari is the fourth feature film from writer-director Lee Isaac Chung. In the 1980s, the Korean-American Yi family, Jacob, Stephen Yeon, Monica, Han Ye-ri, and their children, Anne, played by Noel Kate Cho, and David, played by Alan Kim, moved from California to a new plot of land in rural Arkansas where Jacob hopes to grow Korean produce to sell to vendors in Dallas. Declining the services of a water diviner, Jacob digs a well in a spot he finds on his own, enlisting the help of Paul, played by Will Patton, a sweet but kooky, devoutly religious local man. While Jacob is optimistic about the life ahead, his wife Monica struggles to adjust, worrying about their son David's heart condition. Jacob and Monica work sexing chicks at the nearby hatchery and continue and argue constantly while David and Anne eavesdrop. Needing help to watch the kids while they're at work, they arrange for Monica's mother, Sunja, played by Yoon Ya Jung, to travel from Korea. 
Sunjar's arrival immediately rubs David the wrong way as he is forced to share a room with, with his grandma and decides he is, she isn't really what he imagines a grandma to be. Will the Yi family adjust or will Jacob's dream of making his own way for his family on the land become a nightmare? Flick, did you find the story of an immigrant family struggled to live a very American dream? Have you thanking your stars you didn't choose farming for a living? <laughs> Well, actually, I was born in the country, Paul, so I, uh, <laughs> I escaped the farm <laughs> um, for the big smoke. Uh, yeah, it's kind of fascinating, isn't it, the way in which, you know, the farm farming life on screen, particularly in an American context, is so often presented through white characters. So this idea of a of a Korean family moving over and, like, their relocation is really kind of a very fascinating and original and very fresh story I think despite the fact it has this like a long history in cinema of how the landscape is presented in this kind of battle against the land that we also see in Australian cinema as well of course. Um, I am a massive Stephen Ewan fan so I was just immediately going to watch this because I love him um, but I I was really interested in his performance in this and actually the married couple at the, at the centre of this, I think they're remarkably well cast. There's a real um, believability to this story and their connection um, or rather disconnection. Uh, it's, it is loosely inspired by Chung's own um, upbringing, which I thought was really interesting. And perhaps knowing that I, I did want for more specificity in the narrative and I wanted for a little more detail sometimes. It sometimes came across as too subtle or, or too kind of generic in moments, which um, I think was more so in the narrative rather than in the visual storytelling, which is really beautifully captured and there's a lot of tenderness and beautiful intimacy. I really loved how the cinematography changed in certain scenes and went much lower to the ground, much closer to the characters. There's this beautiful shift. There's a particular scene towards the end, which I, I won't ruin for anyone, but this climax to this family's journey that was so uh, shocking and beautifully captured in a really painful way um, that I had a bit of a cry during. In fact, there was many moments during this film that I, I was a, a bit of a softie and had a little cry at. I mean, David is an absolute cutie. Um, he was adorable for the whole film. And I really loved that interaction of that intergenerational friendship. Um, very um, long. <laughs> I don't know. It takes a while for them to become friends, but that mm -hmm. interaction with his grandma is, is really beautiful. There's a lot to love in this film. Um, I don't know if it completely swept me up, but I think that maybe the restraint there was there was just some things that were missing. But I don't know. The more I think about it, the, the visual storytelling is really the strongest part of this film. I just think that sometimes the narrative rushed over things that I, I hadn't quite got my head around and maybe it just requires a second viewing. I'm excited that um, Chung is going to be directing uh, the live action remake of Your Name, which I think is a really fascinating pairing so I'm kind of excited to see what happens there yeah saw that that's mm. quite a project to do a live action version of I know yeah like yeah, <laughs> it's think... interesting they've, they've picked him to do it yeah it's, yeah it's gonna, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting to see how he handles it because his films previous to this have been super indie. So, it's, Ooh, yeah. Yeah, I actually, this film has actually prompted me to do a bit of digging on him because I was curious and I'd be interested to hear what you both think about this. But there was this kind of strange um, Christian mysticism that kind of is woven throughout this film. 
And I looked into it and Shung was actually recently an artist in residence at a um, theology centre. And I was kind of, I think that that is very informative in this this film. Absolutely. Mm. Jamie, Mm -hmm. how did you find Minari? Yeah, um, I quite liked it overall. Um, And I think that on one hand, to me, I felt like for better and for worse, it it resembled like a Sundance indie movie, right? I mean, it's literally a movie that premiered at Sundance like Mm -hmm. last February and um, it has like the same sort of gentle tone and modest realism that I felt like I've seen in like tons of other like independent American dramedies. But to me, um, almost opposite to Flick's um, assessment, I found that there was a specificity there that really drew me in because I saw so much of myself and my family in these characters. Mm. Um, for example, with like Stephen Yun's character, Jacob, um, you know, he's, he's so stubborn and he's so confident and he's so resourceful and you kind of have to be to survive, right? And um, my dad's always been like that as a refugee who somehow made it in Australia. And mm-hmm. like Jacob, you know, he's always been a dreamer with these huge goals who doesn't quite know how he's going to achieve it, but manages to get there regardless, you know? Um, and I also thought, the focus of um on the on the relationship between um the kid david and the grandma was absolutely the best part of the movie because um i feel like it's the movie was at its best when it kind of explored the nuances of um that sort of asian american identity where you become indoctrinated into the ideals of a country which in some ways you don't entirely belong to and that's why there's all this focus on David. You know, he doesn't think his grandma is a real grandma because she doesn't bake. And um, I also remember feeling so much, so, so similarly um, when I grew up, because so I would hang out with my white friends and things would be different. And I had no idea why, especially when it came to relatives as well. Like, for example, I couldn't even speak to my, uh, me and my um, grandma didn't even share like a language. So mm-hmm that was a different relationship to what my friends had as well. So I think it did now on a lot of those beats, although I guess at the same time it was going for a certain universality. And I think Liazit Chung has also mentioned that like he wanted the story to be of um, America more broadly, not just this specific, you know, Asian American immigrant experience in the 1980s. Yeah. How great is the grandmother as well? Just Mm. as an aside, Mm. she's got a wonderful rebellious presence to her I love how disruptive she is throughout the film she's great she's and she just loves needling David as well, which is great and, and a, like a zest for life like a yeah. real yeah he plays a trick on her too which is horrendous <laughs> is one of my favorite bits in the film yeah I thought this was this was lovely and I like that as you've kind of both touched on this is a film we've actually seen plenty of times but never from this perspective um, you know, this is the the American indie film about a family trying to moving from a city to the country, trying to make it their way on a farm, and the struggles within, and you know that tension within the family of this isn't what we thought it'd be, and but we've never seen it from you know an Asian American perspective, um, and it's uh, it's because it's kind of the most American dream policy you know what I mean it's a very it's a very American thing it's kind of you know moving to Arkansas and growing crops on a farm and it's like this American dream couldn't be more American um and to have a family you know coming into America from Korea is just such a great way of of illustrating that and 
Lee Isaac Chung really is framing this small story in an epic fashion. Um, you, you were both talking about the universality of it that he was kind of going for. He shoots its wide open spaces and its mundane interiors in this sort of same massive cinemascope fashion. Like everything is kind of given this sort of epic look. Um, and I think that Chung takes a similar approach to the drama. And for me, it resulted in a feeling at different times, both authentic and melodramatic and both lived in and contrived. Particularly, I wasn't totally on, but the ending felt very, felt a little bit contrived to me. Um, it felt like they needed that big moment to go out on. And I guess I kind of was used to it sort of being smaller and I didn't mind that. Um, I think the cast are, are wonderful, um, particularly Ewan and, and Han Yeri as the parents and Yunya Jung as the, as the kid's grandma. I liked Alan Kim as David. I thought he was adorable, but he did seem a little bit movie kid to me at times. <laughs> a little, you know, a couple of times he had the case of the, Macaulay Culkins and it was just sort of yeah. like eh, okay um, the, cowboy, the tiny cowboy boots <laughs> <laughs> yes um the, the like the the scene with the stick is wonderful um it's something a kid would totally do um I felt the film was at its best when it's sharing it's in those private moments between whether it was between um Jacob and Monica Though their their stuff in particular was the most compelling for me it was that he's selling this dream that he wants you know, he's selling his dream and she wants to buy into it with all her heart but just can't find a way into it. And and that's really fascinating. It's like this isn't what you promised. Like this is and they communicate that history really well, don't they, with mm. the, those interactions. I got a real sense of um very economical with that storytelling of the past that had in California. Yeah. yeah. And it was also fascinating as well, because I I sort of had the feeling they'd moved straight from South, straight from South Korea to Arkansas, and they they'd lived in California for years beforehand, and they'd moved around. And I thought that was an interesting thing as well. Um, sort of, they've had this city life, so they've sort of they're doing both the Korea to America thing and the city to country thing as well. Um, and I, I, I liked, the, but yeah, whenever they were on screen, whenever they're their dynamic was at play I was riveted and I, and I thought it was really beautiful and that thing is like I couldn't help but empathize with Jacob like yeah like this is like I just want to see my I just want my kids to see me succeed at something you know and that and that idea of like well you know if you if you if you run a you know if you run a family a loving family successfully then you are succeeding at something and and but it's um and but also empathetic with her as well is kind of like you know, you're moving into the middle of, you know, BF nowhere and you're like, what, what the hell is this? We're living in a, you know, we're living in a trailer <laughs> in the middle of nowhere and I have no friends and no, and what the hell is this? Um, yeah, love that. And I also loved a lot of the interactions between the grandma and David as well. Um, and David and the sister's relationship as well, the way she would just sort of cover and take him and, and the way Anne would handle David yeah, was really beautiful. Yeah, and I think that that kind of spoke as well to what's lost with when you do relocate, move in, you know, to another country. That sense of you're not simply just having to set up another life; you're also having to reconnect with another community and maybe losing all those that family connections that you would have back home. I thought that that was lovely to see through the intergenerational relationships, and yeah, the the brother sister relationship is very sweet. Yeah, it's really beautiful, and 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 that's the thing. And it's often very, it's often affectionately funny. There's real grace notes of humor here to this sort of heartfelt semi-autobiographical piece about trying to succeed in spite of seemingly insurmountable but all too everyday odds. 
specific to both Jacob's situation, but also, as you said, Jamie, also specific to anyone who finds themselves a stranger in a strange land looking for a new place to belong. Um, so Minari opens at All Good Cinemas on Thursday, the 18th of February, lockdown willing. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford, Jamie Tram, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Another round is the 11th feature film directed by Thomas Vinterberg. Teachers Martin, Mads Mickelson, Tommy, Thomas Bo Larson, Peter, Lars Ranti, and Nicolaj, Magnus Milang, are colleagues and friends at a school in Copenhagen. All four struggle with unmotivated students and feel that their lives have become boring and stale. At a dinner celebrating Nicolaj's 40th birthday, the group begins to discuss a psychiatric theory that we all operate with too low a blood alcohol content and keeping our BAC at 0.05 makes you more creative and relaxed. While the group dismisses the theory, Martin, depressed due to troubles in his marriage, is inspired and starts to drink at work. His relationships with his students immediately improve, so the rest of the group, driven by Nicolaj, follows suit. They agree to a set of rules. Their BAC should never be below 0.05 and they should not drink after 8pm. But as the experiment springs success, the four start drinking more and more to push their limits and open their minds. But will it lead them to transcendence or ruin? Jamie, did this give you any ideas about better living through drinking that you've since (laughs) taken into practice? Well, I'm living in a university share house, so I might may as well be living the dream, the the movie's dream. Um, I was, I overall quite liked it, but I was a bit confused as to why, like, as soon as the blood level reached 0.5%, which they say is about like a glass of wine, depending on like weight, gender, whatever. Um, But as soon as like Mads Mikkelsen has about 0.5%, of a blood alcohol level, he starts slurring his words a little bit and things get like a bit fuzzier. And I was like, is that, does that really happen? <laughs> um, and he starts, you know, teaching like he's out of dead poet society. And um, I, the, the transformation is very sudden and I'm not sure I really was on board at the start, but eventually everyone just starts breaking the rules that they've set up and everyone's having a great time until everything crashes and fails. Um, because, what I really like about the film is that it captures um, like how alcohol really does enhance your life in many ways, like socially and like, yeah, particularly socially. And they find all this newfound passion and vigor, but it also shows that it's not a great coping mechanism. It's not a crutch that you can rely on. And it's very, very clear that the main characters are all losers who are going through like a huge midlife crisis and they're just drinking their way through it. We have like a very like, very loose you know intellectual justification and i think it succeeds in the end but it has to try very very hard to um try and paint mads mickelson as an incredibly boring person (laughs) yeah he's he's um it's hard to keep him down isn't it i mean i love that they fitted in um a beautiful dance sequence which i won't ruin for anyone but um definitely to the song we just played (laughs) 
Uh, I look, look, I love Maz. I, he could, he can honestly do no wrong in my eyes. I first saw him on screen in Open Hearts, which I think is still one I of my favourite films. Film. Yeah, I love that film. I saw two seconds of it halfway through and kept watching it and then rewatched it straight after I finished it. Um, <laughs> check that film out. Um, look, I, yeah, I love Winterberg. I, this is so different from um, The Hunt, which is when <laughs> Maz last played a school teacher. And um, they, the director obviously works really well with Nicholson. There's, there's, a, there's a strong friendship there and I know that both of them were very involved with the production of this and, um, yeah, there's a lovely friendship at the base of this film. Um, I was listening to an interview with Vinterberg actually earlier today and um, he was talking about some of his influences for this film and some of them will be quite obvious when I say them, but Cassavetes in uh, The Husbands mm. and um, strangely enough, but I think it does make sense, um, David Finch's The Fight, um, Fight Club. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I thought that something that I think is one of the strengths of this film is the friendship between these four men is so real. Mm. Um, kind of like what you said, Jamie, I don't think they're losers, I have to admit, but I do think they yeah, are men at this kind of strange precipice in their life where they're kind of stuck in routine and it's that repetition that has has driven them and, and kind of made them lose track of like why they actually do what they do. And I love that there's this question at the core of this film, which is, what what is your purpose like what 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 drives you what inspires you and know that the I think it was like four days out of shooting um Vinterberg's daughter a 19 year old daughter was killed in a car crash and originally the film had been I mean they didn't change it too much but they did decide to go for um a much more um affirmative life-affirming um, narrative, and I think that like the film is dedicated to her, and I think there's something really quite powerful about this film. Like it, it's easily Vinterberg's um, lightest film. It's a real romp. Um, <laughs> I did kind of, did kind of make me want to go out party, partying uh, and having a few few bevs. But um, there's something more to this film. I think there's something. I love the philosophical inquiry there. I think there's there's a lot there to unpack. I my criticisms would be that I love dogma cinema and Vinterberg is one of the um sort of leading you know artists in that in that movement I think that he has moved quite far away from his punkish dogma beginnings and that always saddens me but um, a bit like the leads in this film flick yeah mm-hmm. absolutely and you know that's maybe a very small criticism and purely aesthetic and um this is a really I think this will be a really commercially popular film and I think it will get a huge audience um the thing I think which is interesting, you kind of touched on this before, Jamie, but the way in which the film really has this almost kind of walks this tight tightrope between, you know, alcohol has such a huge part in Danish culture but also in Australian culture and mm. huge um, rates of alcoholism. So it's a really difficult subject material and he's obviously not afraid of going there. I mean, he's, the hunt is all about pedophilia. Festin is horrible um, child sex abuse in it. It's there's He's not afraid to go to those dark places. Um, I wonder how this film will be received. I think that it does actually a really masterful job of staying engaged without being preachy, which is a really hard Mm. balance, but I think it succeeds personally. Yeah, I have to agree. Yeah, I think, Jamie, you're being a little young man harsh on uh, what it's (laughs) like to be in your mid-40s, my young friend. I would like to clarify my thoughts on that. Um, they're not, lo- they're only losers when they go like off their face. Yeah. They're, like people, regular okay. people struggling until they 
derail their lives by yeah. binge drinking. And I think I think I thought that was what we were meant to get from it because there's a moment where like um one of the characters has a child who constantly went to bed and then at one point in the movie this character after a night out just completely went to bed and I mean one of them I was actually really disturbed by one of them one of the characters who's a psychology a psychology teacher and he um he has a student who's prone to nervous breakdown so he convinces this kid to drink Ducati's nerves and like I feel like convincing a teenager to resort to alcohol in order to function is pretty messed up. Um, <laughs> I think I feel it's that a very that's a, thing. I yeah, I feel like that's Danish humor coming out. In all honesty, I think that it is, and that's perhaps where the tone is maybe a bit um, uneven. But I didn't mind that. I think that it's not it's not meant to be in any way prescriptive behavior of teachers. No, oh, no, no, absolutely not. <laughs> I think it's very um, European. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, beyond its catchy premise, um, this is actually, it, again, it's another film that struck me as quite a small s- story. Like, it's just this little tight story of these. I've become, lately I've become more of a fan of, of films that have one aim and do that brilliantly. Um, last week's The Nest was a film like that, and this one does it as well. It's just this very small story about four friends struggling with middle age who um, kind of, this forces this experiment forces them to look at their own what their each of their personal voids are and tr- through which they try to fill it through this experiment to varying degrees of success and where they and also but where their hard limits are and where it's like okay this this is all I can take this is all my marriage can take this is all my family can take um and yeah so it's almost like it's kind of this midlife crisis story that is is taking place within a controlled experiment and, you know, maybe more midlife crisis should take place in control experiments. <laughs> you're very open with your family about what you're doing. Um, and I like the idea that when they have, when they're drinking in very moderate measured doses, like when they're just having the one at the start of the day and that's it, that it actually is kind of opening them up and making things very, it's like, yeah, I could totally see the theory in that. It's like, as long as you don't, and then they begin abusing it and things start to go south, which is, you know, like with any drug really. Um, and I think it's a bit of a kind of a uh, an interesting look at that 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 human relationship with 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 alcohol and narcotics and what what have you mm. this this thing. Um, yeah, I agree. Even when playing an everyman school teacher, Mads is ridiculously handsome and charismatic. <laughs> but and it's like it's hard not to ignore that. But I think this is also one of his quietest and quietest and saddest performance. Uh, performances I think he's really lovely in this I think the whole ensemble is flawless um my I guess my main yeah it's funny I I got to the end of it like this film is as you said Flick it's incredibly entertaining and and you sort of get to the end of it and and you've had a great time and you're kind of wondering what the hell was all that about (laughs) like is is this really about anything but then you start kind of unpacking and it is this sort of yeah it is this really uh sort of digs into this kind of middle age story and this thing of mm. of where you know like you said like what inspires you what is it you're here you know in this time the our short time in this rock what what is it we're trying to get out of this experience called life um and that you know it you shouldn't need an art you know an artificial dose to kind of get you through it um 
it's but you know but but at the same time that that provides the vehicle for them to discover what it is they need and then how to get that sons mm. you know actually one thing i was thinking of i, I did uh looking to it and this is based on a play that um Vinterberg wrote and um Actually, that it was four women who originally oh, wow. cast. Mm. Yeah, and I can't help but feel like just thinking on the, that. I think it would have been a more radical film with showing women doing that because yeah. a lot of and like you were saying before, Jamie, about like the man wetting his bed and like they shirk all these responsibilities. And, and yeah, it's got that element of middle age breakdown. But I think that that would have been much more entertaining to have female characters, <laughs> like to stick with the original. It would have but, yeah. certainly been interesting mm. um, to. Yeah, to 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 see because that's not something we normally see, mm. uh, you know, middle-aged wives and mothers kind of, you know, willfully transgressing those responsibilities, you know, outside of like a a bad mom's movie, you know, <laughs> like something that's actually from a you know like a real kind of look at this sort of thing would be would be super interesting. I did think some of the storylines wrapped up a little too neatly in the end. Um, and I think some might be surprised at how small this story is, but I feel like, yeah, I felt like overall it was a very knowing, funny, bittersweet and constantly entertaining delight. Um, yeah, I came away with a lot of affection for this film. <laughs> so another round is now screening at All Good Palace and Independent Cinemas. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Jamie Tram, Flick Ford, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. But now, let's hear Oscar-winning director Ang Lee expressing his jealousy over the working methods of fellow director Wong Kar Wai. I want to do those cool things. How come I don't get to do those cool <laughs> things? <laughs> like going out shooting with big movie stars without a script. Like, um, no, nah, I don't feel like shooting today. Let's just go. <laughs> shooting for weeks, months, years, and then throw it away and start over again. Like, uh, putting some of the most astonishing images and metaphors and beautiful romantic acting scenes together. And when it doesn't make sense, I just throw in some dreamy dialogue, no, like dreamy monologue and beautiful music, and it'll be brilliant. Thought that was a fun way to introduce Love and Neon, the cinema of Wong Kar Wai, which is the retrospective season that reopened Acme Cinema Program here in Melbourne last Thursday and runs until the 23rd of March. Uh, it's They're screening all of Wong Kar Wai's 11 feature films as well, well, 10 feature films and his uh, short The Hand, which was a short segment from the anthology film Eros, which is screening in a, a expanded director's cut version here. But that's, um, yeah, everything from the, uh, what is it, uh, As Tears Go By, Days of Being Wild, uh, Ashes of Time Redux, um, my my personal uh, two co-favourites along with the film we're about to discuss, which are uh, Chungking Express and Fallen Angels, uh, as well as uh, Happy Together, um, uh, My Blueberry Nights, 2046 and The Grandmaster. So all of those are screening at Acme um, at various dates. Uh, just check acmi.net.au for session times and bookings. But the film that opened the season 
And the one that is screening the most is our final film. In the Mood for Love was the seventh feature film directed by Wong Kar Wai. In 1962 Hong Kong, Chao Ma Wan, played by Tony Leung, is a newspaper editor who moves into a new building with his wife. At the same time, Su Li Zhen, a.k.a. Mrs. Chen, played by Maggie Cheung, a beautiful secretary, moves in with her executive husband uh, next door. With their spouses often away, Chao and Li Zhen spend most of their time together as friends. They have, they seem to have a heap in common from noodle shops, the same noodle shops they frequent, to reading martial arts novels. Uh, soon, they, uh, through a couple of other things they have in common, uh, they are shocked to discover that their spouses are having an affair. Hurt and angry, they find comfort in their growing friendship, even as they resolve not to be like their unfaithful spouses, a decision that hits them harder than either expected. Flick, did this film give you the irresistible urge to dress impeccably, go for noodles and dumplings, and walk home in slow motion, smoking cigarettes? Or were you too crushed to continue? (laughs) Oh, a bit of both. It's such a heartbreaking film, isn't it? I've watched it so many times and I feel like each time it unfolds in a different way depending on what I'm feeling. I um, This was a film that was actually, and maybe still is, part of the melodrama program, oh, like a, you know, melodrama masters um, at Melbourne Uni. And so I watched this many times before while I was teaching that. And, um, yeah, look, this is such an exceptional film. It's actually hard to talk about. I um, So most people probably know quite a lot about this film already, but I think something that was interesting is that it's, The original um, film is based on a Japanese short story and um, it's about these two characters who walk by each other in a stairwell um, but never converse. And I think that this sense of tension and restraint in this film and intimacy is so beautifully communicated but also is exactly what makes it so painful. Um, I'm a massive um, fan of, like, digging into the visual scene and I think that this is a film that provides endless pleasure for, for listeners wanting to, to look into that. Um, the framing, the um, mise-en-scene more generally is so beautifully constructed that it's a film in itself. And I think that's what opens up in the mood for love for so many re-watchings and revisiting, you know, 20, 20 years down the track, 21 years down the track, it still gets so much attention and, and there's endless um insight to be gained from those scenes I think something that stood out to me was just the way in which texture and tactility is communicated in the film and there's a lot of the a lot of the characters remain just out of our framing and not just not just the spouses you know the main characters often are obscured in certain ways um, or things held back and it really talks to the character's moral restraint as well and I love that I think that there's something so beautifully erotic about that that reoccurring motif of restraint and um yeah, there's there's so much to read into this film. I, I don't even know where to begin. I think we're not even talking about the soundtrack yet, which oh. is exceptional. And you can tell that there's this real beautiful nostalgia for 60s um, Shanghai, but also he like the it cuts through different time periods and places and over the course of these two people's lives. So there's this beautiful sense of nostalgia. And actually I'd like to direct listeners to a fantastic um, article I was reading earlier today, which is in Sense of Cinema by Stephen Tell. Um, 
And he talks a lot about how there's these different moods within the film. So there's obviously, you know, the mood of love, um, but there's also the mood of nostalgia and also the mood of melodrama. And melodrama is really being communicated less so in the narrative, although that's a really obvious one with these kind of um, unfaithful spouses, but more so in that nostalgia, um, melodrama is all about creating tone. And it's just, I think this is just a masterclass in tone and atmosphere. So I, could, I just got to say, I don't normally like melodrama. Like, I know you don't. I'm trying to win and you over to the dark it's side. Because, no, but it's like <laughs> you say, it's not commuted through histrionics or thing. Mm. It's communicated through aesthetics. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I can win you over with melodrama for. I'm going to send you some recommendations because I also used to be like, oh, if someone were to ask me what genre, I wouldn't be like melodrama would immediately come to mind. But I think in going back and watching so many films that have been so influential in my love of cinema, they have melodramatic qualities that often is more about the cinematography and the soundscape and mm. things like that. But this still got that at the core. And, yeah, I, I can't say enough good things about this film. It's beautiful. Um, if you haven't seen it, please do go to the exhibition. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> yes, Jamie? I had no idea about this particular prejudice that you had. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I've seen a couple of cirques. They just don't hit me. I, I do love Todd Haynes, though. did not reinvent mise-en-scene for you to be like <laughs> Oh, this. not mise-en-scene, melodrama. Uh, <laughs> you know, like But that's it's... also, I think, uh, prime, those films are prime examples of melodrama playing out in the mise-en-scene. Like, they are outrageously beautiful films in a way that's so ridiculous, but um, it all it all coheres so beautifully. And to a certain extent, I would say, um, in The Mood for Love, as Flick was mentioning, conveys that too. And I think... You know, so much of this film is shot in slow motion, but, like, I also thought it was interesting how at this uh, pivotal dinner scene, suddenly it goes back to, like, earlier Wong Kar Wai where we had these really quick, um, like, pans between both oh, of the characters. That That's scene. one of my favourite things yes. in the movie. Like, the bit oh, where she oh. asks him, what are you implying? And it's like the camera's wandered off and then it flicks back to him and it's almost like that realisation. It's like someone being shaken into, into attention. It's so yeah. good. Absolutely, and I would... I see that as almost like visual histrionics, and I think, mm. it, but I think it's perfect for that moment. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I'm a I'm a massive fan of melodrama, but I I love the way in which it, it is like directed by that camera movement and the and the way in which that scene plays out. Yeah, and we can't really talk about you know Wong Kar Wai throughout his career, but mainly of this period, like without talking about his cinematographer, Christopher Doyle. Mm. Yes, um, yes. Who was actually course. one of two shooters on this film. Um, he ended up um, having to leave because the production went, the production history of this film is fascinating. Mm. Um, there's a, a, a great, uh, there's a great video online on YouTube uh, from the account Filmed in Ether. Uh, which is run by uh, a friend of mine, Hugh Chow, about the troubled production history of of In the Mood to Love, which is in the uh, which is really great and and definitely worth a listen. Um, essentially, this took years, fifteen months to shoot. Um, they had this huge gap, and where like there was an Asian financial crisis, and they had to earn the rest of the budget to to, to finish it. And then there was this huge break, and he ended up shooting twenty forty six at the same time, which I did not know. Like 26, 2046 was released four years later, but was shot parallel with this. Like it's crazy. Did they um, have a massive falling out, or is that is that for this film? Was it? 
I think it might have, yeah, I think there was at the start. Um, mm. And, yeah, but, uh, yeah, there was a there was definitely a breakdown there. I think it was after this this period because I don't recall Doyle shooting um, much of the later stuff, although I could be wrong about that. Um, but, yeah, his, um, yeah, no, it's all this. It's Chunking Express, Happy Together, In the Mood for Love, 2046, uh fallen angels like that's the the prime doyle era and it's just that beautiful quality that to the to the um celluloid in this thing which is just exquisite in fact the whole film i found like myself sitting there and just mentally going whether it was whether it was a composition of the scene or whether it was an emotional moment or 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 a glance the 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 thought that kept going through my head was stop it <laughs> just like you'd see this frame he's like stop it won't go away it's too good <laughs> um you know you can pause things um paul <laughs> I, I couldn't because i saw it at acne so oh, it was, a, it was a little bit more uh uh <laughs> a little more difficult but yeah i i just yeah i adore this film and it and like you guys it, it grows each time i watch it um it, there there's more of it that just seeps in um i i do find though it does even though and it's also for a film of its type uh, of its type it's incredibly tight like the whole thing is done in under 100 minutes although i do i always kind of wish it would get out slightly earlier like there's 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 a final kind of stanza to the film which is clearly making making a making a point um that i that is a little bit of loose elusive to me like there is very beautiful and elegiac but but also just kind of like i feel like it you know like visiting cambodia and visiting angkor and that just felt like if you'd gotten that that little bit earlier it would have completely shattered me but it almost like it gives you time to kind of mm. reflect upon it and not be completely shattered but rather mournful which is which is i suspect what what he's aiming for but it's just kind of interesting that that that, that, that you sort of for a while you're like okay why are we still going here and then and then you're kind of like okay cool but it's it's so i've always found one car wide to be cinema's primary centralist that everything from from the film he shoots on to the to the to the sets to the costumes to everything. I mean, there's shots of costumes in this film. There's a, there's a shot behind Maggie Chung and she's got this great dress which is almost like thatch, oh, and you almost just want to reach so- in and touch it. It's <laughs> I so. Love, yeah. There's a whole nother. Um, <laughs> degree that could be created in just focusing on how fabric is used yes. within this film because it is exceptional and the way in which it's able to capture light in such a way that communicates something beyond what's being said in the dialogue. I really love those moments of something being inexplicable or inexpressible perhaps more, more, more accurately. And it's, it's captured in that dress. That dress is so, and like she wears many different, you know, fabrics and, and but it follows a really similar design and, yeah, there's uh, so much to unpack, <laughs> unpack yeah. with that. I don't even know where to begin, but. I really love how structure and and fabric works works in that, and knowing where the light is going to be caught in those moments, and where the where the camera is going to be as well. Exceptional. Mm. Yeah, so it does not feel like a film that was, you know, like didn't start off as a full script that Wong Kar Wai often made up on the fly and would give actors pages on the day, and like it feels so structured. It feels so beautiful. Like um, the 
the uh, editor of this film, William Chang, must be like an unsung hero, like helping put this together um, because it's so, yeah, it, it feels so incredibly, everything feels so precise. It's got that Kubrick thing, I guess, you know, feeling incredibly precise, but what we don't know is it was so sprawling and often random and quite, yeah, it's, it's mm. weird kind of controlled chaos. Jamie, was this the first time that you'd watched this film or had you seen it before? No, so I'd seen it before a couple of years oh, okay. ago yeah. and um, I was a bit caught on it back then because um, it wasn't what I expected. It was my first Wong Kar Wai film and I was expecting something a lot more conventional. Um, people were like, oh, you know, it's a little bit like Brief Encounter or even like Carol and I kind of get those comparisons mm. that it's a really unique film in its own right. But I actually do think those comparisons are really legit but it's more about... I guess, the urban alienation of those films and also about how hard it is to, like, carry out, like, a secret affair. Um, I don't know why anyone tries it. It looks like it's not worth <laughs> the effort, frankly. Um, but the way that, you know, at one, on one hand, we've been these sprawling metropolises and Wong Kar Wai is amazing at filming Hong Kong, as you know, mm. was alluded to before. And in these sprawling metropolises, like, you know, you're at once, like, you know, you lose individuality, but also you also lose privacy. And, mm. um, yeah, it's interesting how these two characters have to hide their friendship, even though it's completely innocent because their neighbours are always keeping track of them. Well, not completely innocent. Yeah. And there's, and there's also and there's also no evidence to their neighbours that their spouses are cheating. They just mm. be away on mm. business all the time. So every, to everyone's, uh, to their neighbours' uh, kind of view, it's that, their neighbors travel and it's like uh, the, the you know their spouses are traveling and their friends and yeah so it's this whole mechanism to and yeah they're like you say jamie it's like they're constantly under they're like in a snow globe they're constantly under a microscope um and having to watch every move it's yeah i i think we could go on all night about this film i think it's exquisite uh so in the mood for love is screening at ACME, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, at various times between now and March 23rd. Visit acmi.net.au for session times and bookings. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. So you've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford, special guest star Jamie Tram, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. We discussed Minari, now screening at All Good Cinemas, Another Round, now screening at Palace and Selected Independent Cinemas, and In the Mood for Love, screening at Acme as part of their Love and Neon, the cinema of Wong Kar Wai season. You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. Next week, lockdown permitting, fingers crossed, we will see Simon Baker and Jacob Jr. Nayangul form an uneasy alliance in the and apparently this term is a thing now, meat pie western. <laughs> Seriously, we couldn't go with kangaroo western? I'm going to go with kangaroo. Yeah, kangaroo western. I like meat so pie, spaghetti western, meat pie western. Oh, it's it terrible. <laughs> no, yeah, like intellectually it makes sense, but high ground. And we'll chat to the film's director, Stephen Johnson. And lastly, we, in a nod to our Stephen Page spotlight episode from last year, we'll take a look at the history of the Indigenous Bangara Dance Company in Wayne Blair and Nell Minchin's documentary, Firestarter. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 